A few months ago, I read uh, of a fascinating account of a set of identical twins <clears throat> who uh, were separated just four weeks after they were born. And they were reunited 39 years later in a study on twins that was being done in Minnesota. And they discovered that they had married and divorced women named Linda, married second wives named Betty, named their first sons James Allen. And that's not all. They both drove the same model of blue Chevrolet. They both enjoyed woodworking. They often vacationed on the same small beach in St. Petersburg, Florida, and owned dogs named Toy. <clears throat> now, when you read something like that, it makes you think that we have no freedom of choice at all. It's all in our genes. And certainly, twin studies that have been done on twins, that's about the most extreme case of, of similarity, Studies have been that have been done on twins do show that uh, for identical twins, obviously, a, a large percentage are, are, is due to genes. But there is also a difference due to the different environments in which um, these twins grow up. <clears throat> you may have uh, read, too, of, the, of HUGO, the Human Genome Project, the mapping, the, the uh, project which is a worldwide one, with cooperation between different nations to map out the human genome so that when we know that, we will be able to perhaps delete genes that are unfavorable to us uh, or to the next generation and, and uh, change things around to, to change our futures. <clears throat> you read of psychological studies, sociological studies that suggest that, that uh, we are conditioned, determined by our childhood or by our environment. And the scientists vie for whether it is nature or nurture that determines our existence. And when you read all these things, you, you begin to wonder, are we just fooling ourselves that we have the illusion of choice and of freedom? And there are some scientists who say, yes, we are fooling ourselves. Really, we are just determined by our genes and our environment. And it seems to me that the sciences, all the sciences, inevitably by the nature of what they are doing, lead to a deterministic view of human nature. Because they are trying, by definition, to explain the laws which govern our existence, the laws of cause and effect, trying to make associations between those. And they all have a tendency to reduce men and women to machines or to, uh, to their biology, to their hormones, to their genes. They suggest that we are victims of biology and circumstance. And yet there is something in us that cries out against that. When we read that sort of thing, we say, no, that's not all that we are. Surely we have some, some freedom. We are not just machines or conditioned animals. There's something that longs to break free from the confines of, of, uh, of science and these conditioned, this idea that we have a determined existence. There's something in us that says, no, we are responsible agents. Our choices really matter. And nowhere, I think, is this tension seen more clearly than in the history of psychology and psychiatry in the last hundred years or so. And I want to just take you with it for a very brief glimpse, and I'll be expanding on this in the, the workshop afterwards. Um, but I want to give you an, an introduction to it here. When I started studying psychiatry some years ago, uh, some of my non-Christian friends thought, I th think, thought, I think, that 
this will, this will certainly deal with his Christian faith. Um, after he's read Freud and Jung and all the others, there won't be much left of that for him. And some of my Christian friends were very worried. Uh, they thought the same sort of thing. <laughs> and in fact, what I found was that it was incredibly exciting to read Freud and Jung uh, and many of the others, Adler, and many of the others who had uh, developed ideas in this field. Because as I went along, it only served to underline the truth of Christianity and to show that, that uh, these men, they had good ideas in many areas, but they also were going way off beam in their understanding of human nature. So rather than undermining my faith, it tended to reinforce it. <clears throat> and what you find in the, in the history of psychology and psychiatry, since the turn of the century especially, is that they are wrestling, grappling with these polarities of human existence, of freedom and determinism. How much are we responsible agents and how much are we determined by the things that have happened to us or our biology? And at the beginning, at the, around the turn of the century, when Freud was beginning to develop his ideas in the late, late in the last century, he developed ideas that that tended to say that we are determined, yes, by our genes, especially by our biology. He was, developing, he was trying to look at the inner world of the unconscious in the way that the scientists were looking at the outer world and looking at the body. He said, surely we can discover the laws that, that uh, describe the mechanisms of the psyche. And he described the psyche in rather... Um, in, in, in sort of physical models, um, using the forces that were, were um, at work within us. And essentially his model comes down to the fact that we are determined by our past and by our biology. We may have a small amount of choice to change that, but really it's not very much. Now running in parallel was, with Freud was a completely different school of psychology, developed again with the idea of making it a scientific discipline, the behaviorist school of psychology, which says that we can describe the, the stimuluses that make people respond in certain ways. We can describe the rewards and the punishments which govern their existence. And essentially, the behaviorist view of, of man is a deterministic one, again, that you really have only the illusion of choice. It's not really choice that you are determined by the things that go on around you. So both Freud, Freud, Freudianism and behaviorism leave us with what I would call a dehumanized view of man, that we are, tend to be conditioned, determined by our environment. And Freud, of course, was very influenced by Darwin, uh, as was Marx, um, and the three, in a sense, influencing each other and influencing our culture all of them, with Marx with a sort of economic d determinism, Darwin with an evolutionary determinism, and Freud with a psychological determinism. And then alongside this again, you have a third stream, which is the organic or medical model in psychiatry, which says that we are a result again of uh, the, the chemistry in our brains or in our bodies. And our psychological responses can be altered by giving us certain drugs, certain medications. 
which taken to an extreme, that organic medical model, if that's all you have, again is a rather deterministic view of man. Now in the, the 50s, there began to be a reaction against this. The humanists, the existentialists, uh, said, surely we are more than this. And, and a whole school of psychology called humanistic psychology began to develop. Uh, and what they were saying was, we believe that we, our choices do matter. We can change things. Now, obviously, from a Christian perspective, this was a good development. It was swinging back to say that we are responsible agents, <clears throat> that we do have freedom, we do have significance. And this, over the last 20 or 30 years, has been a very formidable force in the world of psychology and psychiatry, and clinical psychology especially, and counseling. In the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, many of the people who were believed in the goodness of human nature and that all you needed to do was to discover yourself, get into self-awareness exercises, um, and then you would discover the essential goodness that is in you. Many of these people became disillusioned with that and have moved on to accept what I would see as a Hindu view of reality, an Eastern view of reality, and have moved into what is now called transpersonal psychology. Each of these are seen as a, a definite stream or force within, within the world of, of clinical psychology. And what you find in both humanistic and transpersonal psychology, where they are trying to reclaim uh, responsibility and freedom and significance, is that they are making man more than he is. They are not dehumanizing him. They are trying to de deify man. Because essentially in transpersonal psychology, in Eastern mysticism, Matt, they would say that you are in fact God. And through disciplines of meditation and other Eastern disciplines, you can realize your essential oneness with God and your essential intrinsic deity. Let me just illustrate this with a diagram here, just to summarize what I've been trying to say already. If you see these, the two circles down here at the bottom, behaviorism and Freudianism, describing something about the nature of our existence, about man. And each of them is saying something that is true, that we are, in, to some degree, like the animals. We, are, we do have conditioned reflexes. Um, and Freud, that we are determined, to some degree, by our childhood, by our genes, by our biology. So each of them, in a sense, is saying something that is true. But they are developing them into a system built around this view, which is a reductionist system. It reduces us to being less than what we really are. Then you have the reaction against that in humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology, again saying something that is true about human nature, that we are responsible, we are free and transpersonal psychology saying there is more to us than just matter, the, 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 the physical. We do have a spiritual existence. Now, they would say, ultimately, that uh, the matter is an illusion and spirit is all that there is. And you become one with the, all, the, the spirit of the universe, with God, whatever they describe it as. 
So in a sense, these two are tending to deify and make man more than, more than he is. Now from a Christian perspective, this is the, the, the square in the center here. Uh, we would say that, uh, as I've said already, that each of these has a partial truth, is a partial truth about the nature of who we are. But it's not until we go back to the scriptures and to the Bible to find out exactly who we are um, that we can define the, the limits, as it were, of our existence. And I want to come back to that uh, a bit later on. <clears throat> so you see there is, a, there is a, a tension in all disciplines between the themes of determinism and freedom. Let me use another diagram to try and illustrate this. Can you see that from the back? It's a bit faint, I'm afraid, in some of it. <clears throat> a tension that arose particularly since the time of the philosopher Descartes. Now, I don't want to go again into detail into this just now. But he made a strong distinction between the mind or the soul and spirit, the non-material part of us, and the material part of us, the body. Okay? And ever since then, in philosophy, in psychology, uh, in, in the world of science, people have been tending to go in two directions, either in this direction down here, which in a sense makes a god out of reason and science. Uh, so you have scientific materialism, positivism. The only thing that is really, really there is matter, the physical. And inevitably, this leads to a, determin a, a determined, dehumanized view of human nature. And that's what you see in Freudianism and behaviorism. On the other track, up above here, where people have been suspicious of the reductionist nature of science and of reason. They have clung on to experience and intuition, believing that this, within this there is, there is the secret of human dignity and, and the, the answer to the meaning of the universe. You have the, the uh, romantics, the existentialists, the, the mystics, with their faith in, ex, in pure experience and their suspicion of science, uh, leading to a view which, which is epitomized in humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology. Now, I think what this demonstrates is that science is, in fact, limited in its description of human nature, and an experience is limited, too. In some way, we have to be able to hold both together in tension with each other. Most who work in the sciences um, have a feeling that, that this is all reality is. Uh, and yet, I believe that science only describes a very small part of reality. It's not all of reality. And that those who are in the sciences need to be very humble in relation to what they are doing. They are describing just a part of it. And they need to see it within the whole framework of the reality that God has created, where experience, intuition, all these other things do play a part in uh, helping us to understand the world in which we live. Now, I'll be developing a little more in, of this in the, in the workshop afterwards, uh, if you want to come along to that, and also developing it in, in the area of just practical
counseling, and so on. Moving back now among the to pursue this theme of freedom and determinism among the the daily practicalities of life. I think as Christians we find a similar oscillation that we find it very hard to hold in tension these two poles of freedom and determinism. From a slightly different angle, if we approach it, when when, when I am anxious to escape my responsibility for what I have done, it's very easy for me to blame my genes or my hormones or my wife or my children or uh, the things that are going on around me. Um, I can't help it. It's the way I am. It's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. Anything to escape responsibility. In uh, some reports that I read of... uh, people writing in about their accidents when they were claiming for insurance, there are some intriguing ways in in which people shift blame away from themselves to blame whatever was going on outside them. The telephone pole was approaching fast. (laughs) I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. Well, no one was to blame for the accident, but it never would have happened if the other driver had been alert, and so on. There are numerous examples of that. So we we blame other people. We blame our biology, our genes, whatever it is. And I think especially amongst Christians, it is easy to get into, to to perhaps be attracted to a form of theology which denies our significance, a sort of hyper-Calvinistic theology which says it's really all God's fault or uh, it's the will of Allah, as the Muslims would say. I really don't have any significance in all this. God is working all these things out, and I just go along and do my best in the middle of it. But really, he's responsible for it all. Now, ultimately, God is sovereign over everything, but I believe he has given us freedom to choose. I'll come back to that in a moment. So that the Muslim view of the will of Allah or the Hindu view of karma, your fate, again, is a, is a pretty deterministic view of reality that your choices are not really very significant. We may blame God. We may also blame the devil so that it wasn't, uh, it's not me getting angry, it's a spirit of anger in me that is making me angry, that needs to be cast out, dealt with, delivered from. It's It's not me lusting, it's a spirit of lust within me. Again, the tendency to to move away, to avoid our responsibility in this. And I think we we very often prefer simple answers, being able to blame one or two identifiable things outside ourselves, rather than trying to wrestle with the complexity that it may be due to things that have happened to me in the past that I react this way, And it may be due to the devil who is working in this situation. It may also be due partly to my choices. That's much more difficult uh, to, to wrestle with all of those things at once. So we may, in these sort of subtle ways, deny our freedom, our significance and responsibility before God. Now on the other side, I think as Christians sometimes we try to escape the 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 limits of our existence, 
on this in this world, in this fallen world. Uh, so that when I want to escape the frustrations of this life, of uh, my upbringing, perhaps, which has left me badly scarred, or my biology, which makes me prone to disease, or, or um, uh, the, the poverty that is around me, whatever it is, then I begin to say, to be attracted to a theology which says if you have enough faith, then you will be able to transcend these limitations, these things that tend to determine your existence and limit your freedom. If you are obedient enough, then God will bless you with both health and wealth. And the health and wealth gospel, which is so much more prevalent in the States than here, but still subtly there, I think, in many uh, churches, um, would say that if, if you are obedient enough, if you have this experience of the Spirit, if you read your Bible, pray enough, whatever, then all these things can be yours. The sun will shine on you on your holiday. Uh, no pest nor drought will come near you. God will heal all your sicknesses, and so on, and so on. And it gives us really the hope that by my faith, by my obedience, I can actually bring heaven now. I can overcome all the fallenness that I live in and the limitations of this world and be totally free from, from suffering. <clears throat> now, in, the, in Eastern mysticism, in the Eastern view of reality, there is a similar sort of desire there to transcend suffering. And they would say that, as I hinted earlier, that essentially the world in which we live, the world of suffering, is not real reality. If you could change your view of the world, you would see that really things are all right, things are perfect, that you are one with God. And again, you, they are promising total freedom, the promise that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you remember, that you shall be as God. And that's an incredibly attractive thing to us when we live in a broken world. We want to be outside all this suffering. We want to be like God. And we are frustrated that we can't be. So any way in which we can get that, whether it's within the Christian world of wanting more power, more, more uh, healing, whatever it is, we want to be, to be like God. <clears throat> or whether it's in the Eastern view uh, through the meditative disciplines and so on. What then does the, the Bible say about this tension between the freedom that we have and the things that determine our existence? Are there any biblical principles that we can look at in this? <clears throat> and I find it very exciting that the Bible, one of the evidences of the truth of the Bible is that it corresponds to the reality in which we live. So we find everyone else, scientists, psychologists, uh, working, struggling with this tension of determinism and freedom. It's a part of the reality in which we live. And the Bible speaks to that. It also talks about that tension and helps us to deal with that tension. <clears throat> I often think that as I've read other psychologists and, and um, writers in this area, 
that it's rather like the, the, the picture that comes back to my mind again and again is of, of Humpty Dumpty having fallen off the wall and the king's soldiers come along trying to put this egg back together again. The only problem is they've never met Humpty Dumpty before. They don't know what he looked like. They don't know what an egg looks like. And so there are a few of them over here analyzing the chemical composition of shell, <coughs> trying to work out what it, how this creature can get back together. There are a few over here look at putting a few bits back together, but they don't know what the whole is supposed to look like. But there are a few wise ones who head off for the king and ask the king, what does this creature look like? Who is Humpty? How do we put him back together again? And he gives them the pattern, the image that is there to put back the, the broken fragments uh, together again. Another um, illustration, too, that, that I find helpful is of thinking of, of going to uh, an Agatha Christie film. <clears throat> and you arrive five, ten minutes late for that film, and you've missed the crucial murder scene at the beginning when the dagger was going in, the, the gloved hand was there, or whatever it was. And then, unfortunately, um, you have to get back to relieve the babysitter or something, and you have to leave ten minutes before the end. And you're left wondering how to put together all the information that you have. You never see the resolution, and you're not quite sure what happened at the beginning. And I feel that, that for, for folk in the world who reject God and reject the Bible, it's a bit like trying to make sense of the universe with just the middle. And thankfully, God has given us, in Genesis, in Revelation, and all through the threads of Scripture, the clues about what happened in the beginning and what, ha what is going to happen at the end in order to make sense of what is happening in our experience now. So it's very important that we know from the king what man was supposed to be, what he was before the fall, and what he is to be again when he is restored in the image of God, as Ranald was, was talking to us talking about last night. So let's look at just a few, a few themes about freedom in, in the, the scriptures. The first theme is this, that is, is freedom and finiteness. Freedom and finiteness. We know that we are created within limits which both restrict and enable us so that I cannot fly from the top of a building without the aid of, some, without the aid of a hang glider. Um, I can't do it as a human being. I'm not built to fly, nor am I built to go down to the depths of the ocean without some mechanical technological aid. So there are boundaries to being human, boundaries to my finiteness. I am not God. I cannot do anything. And there are, there are different boundaries for each person. There are sort of general boundaries, but some people, there's a tremendous diversity in the creation. Some people have enormous physical strength, athletic ability, musical ability, artistic ability, intellectual ability. Some people have extraordinary memories. So there's a tremendous diversity and a wonderful diversity in the creation. <clears throat> so that is the first thing, the freedom and finiteness. And the second is that of freedom and fallibility. 
We are made to live within certain moral boundaries. And of course the cry today is for freedom from all restraints. That is the definition of contemporary definition of freedom is free to do whatever I want. And yet that's not the way God made us. Jean-Paul Sartre said that the that he rejected all authority because it limited his freedom. But we are, we are made by God to live in a certain way, to live in a certain environment. I love that um, quote from St. Augustine, that as a bird is free in the air and a fish free in the sea, each in, its, each in their own natural element, so is a man truly free in the will of his God. So we have to accept the limitations of our existence. We have to live within the maker's instructions. Now this means, though, that if the non-Christian lives within the maker's instructions, within the boundaries that God has set, within those moral rules, what the theologians call common grace, within the realm of common grace, that they will in some way experience something of the freedom that God intended them to have. So that if a a couple live faithfully within their marriage uh, and don't commit adultery, uh, don't break those boundaries that God has set, then they will experience a measure of blessing that is part of God's common grace to men and women. And one could illustrate that in all sorts of areas of life, whether it's politics, business, uh, whatever areas where we live within the... the, the, uh, the moral boundaries that God has set, there is a measure of blessing in that. And this freedom that God is giving us within these moral boundaries is constrained by his love. It's not just a killjoy God who is sitting up there making life difficult for us. He loves us so much, just as I love my children and I set boundaries for them because I love so this, this freedom is constrained by love and um, our response should be one of love and not of fear. <clears throat> then the third area of freedom, which and this is the one that I want to spend the most time on in the time that's left, and that is the, the area of freedom and fallenness. So we have freedom and finiteness, freedom and fallibility, and then freedom and fallenness. Because as Randall was saying last night, our freedom to be what God intends us to be is limited in this life. Every part of our being is affected by the fall. And I want to look at that particularly in three areas. The traditional areas of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The influences both outside us and inside us which shape and mold and limit us and influences that we have to work against. Let's look look first of all at the flesh. I'm using here the biblical world, the flesh in the New Testament. And it's used in a number of different ways. It refers at times to the physical body, but at other times it refers to our sinful human nature. You will find in the NIV the word sarx is translated sinful human nature or body depending on the context. And these are so intricately interwoven with each other um, that one has to examine that context very carefully to see exactly what the writer is meaning. If you think of, 
for example, of Paul's conflict in Romans 7, verse 15 and onwards. He says, I do not understand what I do. Here's a man in conflict. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do, and so on. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. He's not saying there's nothing good in him at all. He's saying in his sinful nature, there is nothing good. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, he's, he's talking there about his sinful nature. He's also talking about his body. Let's look then, just uh, uh, to dividing the flesh up into four different aspects, just to try and tease out what it means. First of all, the body, the physical body. <clears throat> You remember that after the fall in the account in Genesis 3, there was not only spiritual death as a result of that, but there was also physical disease and decay and death. An example of one of the physical changes is given in Genesis 3 of, of pain in childbirth. And we inherit the many consequences of the fall. There was a radical change in, in, the, in the structure of reality as a result of, man, of, of Adam and Eve's sin, which I think has been compounded and multiplied by our own sin down through the generations. So that we can say, in a sense, as a result of living in a fallen world, a child may be born with spina bifida, with mongolism, with mental handicap of one sort or another, or you may be born with a particular genetic vulnerability to anxiety or depression. I may later in life develop diabetes, a stroke, a cancer, senile dementia. All of these things which limit my freedom and demonstrate my imperfection as a fallen human being. Now there may of course be healing of these things through medicine, which I believe is a God-given gift to us here in a fallen world, and also sometimes through prayer for healing. But not all illnesses are healed. Often we go through uh, throughout life with some sort of thorn in the flesh, a physical thorn in the flesh, from which we, although we may ask the Lord to heal us, we are not healed. I think his word to us comes as it did to Paul, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. One of the most troubling and deeply moving experiences I found as a young doctor was to go around the, the uh, psychogeriatric wards of the hospital where I worked and see old people often neglected by their families, sitting or lying alone for hours on end with severe senile dementia, I was, also, I was very troubled when my grandmother had senile dementia and seeing this lovely Christian lady who seemed, in a sense, to disappear inside the prison of her, her fallen, broken human body until I believe she was released through death into the presence of the Lord. 
But we, we cannot escape this, in a sense, the, de the determinism of our fallen human bodies. We can do things to resist it, to fight against it, thankfully, through medicine. But ultimately, the one inescapable uh, determining factor in our lives is death, the death of the body. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. And I think he meant in his body, just aware of his weaknesses, his frailty, in an age when there was far less medicine than we have today. Outwardly we are wasting away, he says, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. It's a wonderful image of the change that is going on within us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And because of God's amazing grace, even the last enemy, death, is for the Christian the ultimate liberation into the freedom that God intended for us. <clears throat> so Paul cries out mockingly, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. So I think just these are some of the ways in which our freedom is limited by our fallen bodies. And when we are given new bodies, we will know the tr true freedom within the limits of a finite but not fallen frame. Now, secondly, the area of uh, what, what I can only call the non, our non-physical, the mind, the emotions, and the will, which also, I believe, is twisted and broken, as C.S. Lewis says, is bent by the effects of the fall. So our mind, our emotions don't work together as they, as, they, as they should, as Paul discovered when he said, the good I would, I do not, that which I would not, I do. There's a conflict within him. There's, a, there's disorder and disharmony at every level of creation as a result of the fall, including our mind and our emotions. <clears throat> and something that, that can either make that worse or better, the sort of what we are born with in terms of that inner fragmentation is the effect that our parents have on us. So that if our parents abuse us, sin against us, neglect us, deprive us, then that inner brokenness may actually be compounded and made worse so that we are left with the scars and wounds of a broken family. On the other hand, if you come from a, a good and loving family, then there can be real healing of some of the brokenness that is within and are working against the fallenness that is, that is within us. So that, that there is a part of our sinful human nature which is affected, either made worse by or made better by, the sins of the fathers down and the mothers down through the generations. And then fourthly, in relation to our sinful nature, there is the factor of our own self-centeredness and pride. In a sense, I've been looking at the things that we are not responsible for, but here is the bit that we are definitely responsible for. Life lived without reference to God. That within me which chooses to rebel against God and to go my own way. So the Dictionary of New Testament Theology says, the outlook of the flesh is the outlook oriented towards the self, that which pursues its own ends in self-sufficient independence of God. 
So there, there, in a sense, is trying to tease out the, what the flesh means, different aspects of the flesh and our sinful nature. Looking for a moment then at the others, the world and the devil, just briefly again. For we not only struggle with our sinful nature and the effects of the disease of the body, but also the influence of the world, a world which has rejected God by and large. Now God created the world as good, and there is much that is in it, in it that is good. There's also much in the world that limits our freedom. If you think of the, in, in Ethiopia, in the Sudan, millions of people living with one thought, how can I survive until tomorrow? Their freedom to be what God intended them to be is drastically limited by their physical situation. And part of their physical situation is a result of the sins of the fathers of previous generations who raped the forests in Africa, stripped them. And the, the effects, perhaps, of the, the forest deforestation in Brazil will be felt by generations after us. So there's a sense in which the world presses in on us in different ways. If you think of the Soviet Union until very recently and the drastic limitation of choice and of freedom to live the way God intended people to live in that country. Thankfully now there is more freedom appearing, but without some sort of Christian base to know how to, to make a structure around that freedom to maintain it, it's going to, it, it's going to be a very difficult thing to know what to do with it. So you can see the economic and social and political realities that can easily limit our freedom. <clears throat> and then the devil. Now, I don't want to say much about this, but just to acknowledge the, that right through the Bible, from beginning to end, the devil is seeking to destroy the kingdom of God, seeking to limit the freedom of the people of God. He, of course, had a hand in the original sin. And I think he has a hand in, 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 uh, at a personal level when we read in Ephesians where Paul writes that in your anger, do not give the devil a foothold. At a very personal level, he is there trying to, to limit our freedom, to make us disobey the, the law of God, which gives us the real freedom that he intended us to have. We read of the, the, the struggle which isn't against flesh and blood, but against something far more than that. It's not only flesh and blood. There are principalities and powers at work in this world. And we see, of course, in Job, a glimpse behind the curtain, behind the veil, of something of Satan's activity. And Satan so often promises freedom, but in fact makes people slaves to the kingdom of darkness. <clears throat> So we've looked then at the, the things that, that, in a sense, shape and mold and, and try to restrict our freedom. As we recognize these influences, again, we come back to the question, do we then have only the illusion of freedom? Do our choices mean anything? And our experience, on the one hand, shouts out, no, our choices do mean something. And the Bible resounds right through from beginning to end, yes, your choices are deeply significant. For to be made in the image of God is to be made as a choice maker. A choice maker. And your choices are crucial 
in this world. See, Stephen Evans, in a book called Preserving the Person, writes this. He says, being human, being made in the image of God, is to, is to make significant, responsible choices and actions. We are not just products. We have a hand in shaping ourselves. I am who I am now, both because of what I have experienced early in my life and also because of the way I have learned to cope with, to collude with, and respond to those experiences in responsible, willing decision. In other words, there are things that determine my existence, but, I, but my responsibility is for how I react and respond, respond to those, whether it's in the emotional area, psychological area, or in any other area of life. So at an individual level, <clears throat> we have to ask, look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what in me is my finiteness? What is my fallenness? What is my, my fallibility or my sin? So in looking at my finiteness, the New Testament encourages us to have, to, to have a sober judgment about ourselves, a realistic view of who we are in terms of our gifts, in terms of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, being content with who we are, in other words, not saying to God, the Creator, why have you made me this way? Why didn't you make me with, with a, a greater musical gift or artistic gift or whatever it is? We are to come to terms with and accept graciously what God has given. Then in the area of fallenness, to, to, to uh, discover what can be changed. If there are diseases that can be cured by medical means, let's use those. Uh, let's ask God to heal us, to ask in, in prayer. And yet, if he doesn't, then in a sense we have to accept that uh, and learn to live with the, the disabilities that we may have. For some people, as I said, may have thorns in the flesh uh, for a very long time. <clears throat> but I believe that there is much in the area of fallenness that can be changed at the emotional level, the, the, the renewing of the mind, um, in relationships, whatever it is, we are to, to be prepared to, to ask God to help us to change where we need to change, to be more like him. And the same in the area of fallibility and sin. Now, our choices, too, are not only enormously significant in relation to our own lives, but also how our lives affect other people. And throughout the Bible, you have the effect you see in, in the history of the kings, in Kings and Chronicles, how one king's choices affected other kings down through the generations or their families. So your choices in your own family, or at a, a much greater scale, one man's choices like Gorbachev's choices in relation to the Soviet Union, have enormous repercussions on the world. Or in the Second World War, if our parents, grandparents in the last few generations had not stood up against evil and made a choice to fight, our history might be very different. We might not be sitting here today. We don't know. If men like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury had not stood up in their day and chosen to fight against the evils of their generation, 
again, our history might have been very different. So whether it's in medicine, in politics, in homemaking, in art, in music, wherever it is, our choice before God is to push back the fallenness in the world, the evil in the world, and to live more and more as he intended us to live. It will be a struggle. It will be a battle, this side of glory, because will, nothing will be perfect until then. But we can do something significant. We're not to just sit down and retreat uh, into uh, our holy huddles of Christians, but we are to be out there influencing the world, being salt and light, where our choices really matter to ensure that we and our children and our children's children can live in the sort of freedoms God intended us to live in as far as is possible. So our choice is to resist the world and the flesh and the devil so that we know freedom from slavery to sin and Satan and freedom to serve God in the sort of freedom he has promised us. You remember how Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you continue in, the, in, in obeying what you, you can understand now, you will understand more and more of the truth and you will progressively become free in the way he intends us to be free. And this is living in the, the hope and looking forward to the day when we will know perfectly the freedom that he has given us. We read in Romans how the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the freedom that is to come in the future, waiting for liberation from our sinful human nature, from our broken bodies, from our twisted minds, from our difficult relationships, whatever it is. And we, this side of glory, can have just the first fruits of that. Just a taste, in a sense, of what is to come. Now, we live, obviously, all of this. We need to discover our freedom, not on our own, not in isolation, but in relation to God. We are made for relationships. That's what being made in the image of God is about. We are made to live in a relationship with him and in a relationship with other Christians. So you can't do it on your own. You need other people to help you to fight this fight, to push against the brokenness and fallenness in the world. And as we know his love for us, both directly from him and also through other Christians, it helps us to live in the reality that he intended us to live in. It helps us to change. I love that uh, passage in in The Velveteen Rabbit that talks about uh, becoming real. In a sense, there's a parallel between becoming real and living in the sort of freedom God intended us to live in. You remember when the, the Velveteen Rabbit turned to the old, wise, experienced skin horse in the nursery and asked, what is real? Does it mean having things buzz inside you and a stick out handle? And the skin horse replied, real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. 
Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out, and you get very shabby. But once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. There's a sense in which, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and begins, us to, make, begins to work in us the process of sanctification to make us what God intended us to be, to restore that broken image. Um, and it's in a relationship with him that this happens, and in a relationship with other Christians, that we become more like him, more real, living in his reality. So let me just summarize as I finish now, just one paragraph in thinking about this theme. The Christian view of life, in the Christian view of life, we bow before our finiteness. We accept the limits of our finiteness. We are not to become God or gods. We are to become like him, made in his image, but not actually to become God. We bow before our finiteness. We repent of our fallibility and sin. And we weep over our fallenness. But we do not sit down under that fallenness and accept what is, but rather by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we struggle against our fallenness and imperfections in every area of life. As Paul says, we live in this life sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful about the brokenness and abnormality in this world, yet rejoicing in the fact that he is changing us from one degree of glory to another, and that one day... We will be with him forever. And that is the, the wonderful hope that is set before us when we will know perfect freedom. Now let me stop there. I've read... you want to take up anything on any of those, those areas? Yes. Yes. No, well, I, I combined two together a little bit. When I was talking about the, the mind and the emotions and the will, the second one, I brought in there the effect of the sins of the fathers and mothers upon down through the generations, which also have an effect on our sinful nature uh, and may either make us more bent uh, or may actually work against our, our bentness and fallenness. <clears throat> yes? Recognizing what are your limitations? I mean, mm -hmm. Just to instance, sickness, um, disease, if you like, a lot of this is psychosomatic. Uh, isn't as in it, I believe. And um, there are techniques which might be allied to, say, Eastern mysticism, which can help overcome that a lot. And right living does, um, can relieve you of a lot of this disease and sickness. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's recognizing that sort of aspect and what to do about it. Mm -hmm. and what are you? How to recognize one's limits must be a very difficult mm -hmm. thing to do. And uh, should one therefore ignore, say, the benefits of it, such things as meditation and 
Yeah, that's, you put a number of questions together there. Um, <clears throat> yes, I mean, I, I, I think in, in trying to... You're, you're talking particularly about... You mentioned that a lot of disease is psychosomatic. The mind and the body are very much interrelated. That is right. That's true. Um, I would be very hesitant to use uh, uh, techniques of meditation. I think there are simple relaxation techniques which can help people who are very stressed and who need, who are very tense and very on the go all the time, who need to learn to relax. That's very different from meditation techniques. There are, there are similarities to it. Um, and I think you have to be very careful to know what is going on in the meditation. Most meditation is built much more on an, an Eastern view of reality so that you are actually emptying the mind or you're actually meditating using, as in transcendental meditation, uh, a mantra. Um, and the mantra, in many cases, is the name of a Hindu deity. And in the initiation rite for transcendental meditation, you have to actually give a sort of acknowledge or assent to a hymn of praise to a Hindu deity. So transcendental meditation is often marketed as a scientific relaxation technique for stressed businessmen or whatever it is. I feel it is far more than that. It is actually a religious, a deeply religious, mystical, uh, Eastern mystical way of helping you to see reality in a different way. So that most, most Eastern forms of meditation um, would um, lead you to an experience of enlightenment where you see the oneness of all things and you, you change your perception of reality. And I think a true Christian meditation is, is actually not emptying your mind completely, but rather meditating on the scriptures or on the character of God, uh, which should lead you to, to praise and to worship and to, to prayer. Um, it's, not a, it's not an emptying, it's rather focusing on what God has revealed about himself and asking him, him to help you to see that more clearly. So I think you have to be careful to discern what sort of meditation <coughs> one is talking about in that area. Yes? Yes. The question was, where, where would I put Jung um, on some of my, my diagrams up here? Um, um, I, see, I see Jung as a sort of bridge between um, Freudian psychoanalytical therapy and humanistic transpersonal psychology. He comes somewhere in between the two. And um, as you probably... You probably know when um, Freud and Jung first met, they talked for about 13 hours non-stop because they had so much in common. But they eventually parted, partly because Freud had such a reductionist view about, the sexu about sexuality, that everything was oriented around sexuality. And partly, I think, too, because Jung's, Jung believed that the spiritual search was a very healthy thing and a good thing, whereas Jung said that once people start asking about the meaning of life, uh, that is, in fact, a neurotic thing to do. It's not a, necessarily a healthy thing. So Jung was very interested in spirituality. Now, the sort of spirituality that he explored, again, was much more of an Eastern spirituality. Um, 
So I would see him as sort of a, as a bridge. He was a scientist, but he was also an incredibly creative thinker and interested in intuition and experience um, and spirituality. So, and, and there are a lot of there are a lot of helpful things in his writings. Uh, and some people think that Jung, when Jung talked about God, he is talking as a as a believer, because in, there's, a, there's a very famous interview. Uh, near the end of his life where he talks to, to someone about his belief in God. But when you actually come down to try and analyze what Jung's view was, it's much more that his view of God is that God is, is the collective unconscious of the human race, that you discover God by going within, in meditation, whatever it is, in dreams, um, that there you discover God. It's not a personal God who is a creator of the universe, but rather it is something within you, which again is much closer to the, the Eastern mystical view. Yes? Um, you commented on the, uh, the dangers of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity mm. thing you need to buy. Yeah. But you've also commented on um, prayer for healing, yeah. on the other extreme, yeah. if you like. Would you like to comment on the balance between the <laughs> Well, again, yes, it, it's, it's holding, I think, in, in tension. The, the reality of the fact that we live in the fallen world, we don't have heaven now. We live, as others have put it, in the tension between the now and the not yet. Um, and our great desire is to have the not yet now. <laughs> and we, we try to, to grasp it whatever we can. If we can develop some technique to help us to, to get rid of, to get a bit of heaven now, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, on the other hand, we... We know that God does uh, work sovereignly into the world. We're not saying that he doesn't act in answer to prayer. So we can pray for healing, but we cannot demand it. I think in his, and we can't work ourselves up into techniques of you know, generating more faith so that God will act. I think, in a sense, it's bowing before him and saying, Lord, I long for this person to be healed. I long to be healed myself. I ask you to do that, but I trust you that whatever happens, I will, I will um, be faithful to you. I think it's, isn't it in, in uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're talking to the king about putting it, being put into the, the burning, fiery furnace, they say, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will still serve him, and not you, effectively. And I think it's, it's that sort of attitude that, that, uh, of, of trust and, and living between the now and the not yet that we have to um, to cultivate. Do you want to come back on that, or are you? Yes. I think you're being aged closer and closer to what I'd like to hear you on, but I don't think that you'll you'll, uh, you'll expand on being possession. Uh, so could I take you halfway with a compromise? Could you give us a word on Mogristenia? I'd almost prefer to deal with demon possession, actually. No. Um, yes, I, I, I mean, I think that we, uh, we often underestimate the the suggestibility of, of, uh, of, of ourselves and of the human race in general, of the fallen human race, um, that, that, crowds, that 
people are very easily influenced and put into a, a sort of subtle trance state by repetitive chanting, by um, repetitive singing, um, whatever it is, um, dancing, puts people, very quickly puts people into a sort of a trance state where they are much more suggestible to the commands of a leader. When you saw Hitler um, in the Second World War consciously using music uh, and particular forms of, of crowd manipulation techniques to influence the mob, the crowd, to do whatever he wanted. He knew how to, he was a past master at that. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see it happening in, in all sorts of situations where you get uh, people in a sort of trance state. They will do anything the crowd wants or anything that the leader wants. And I think this says something to us, too, about our responsibility in Christian worship that some forms of Christian worship are often get very close to getting people into a trance state so they'll do whatever you say through, say, three-quarters of an hour of repetitive singing of rather caressing choruses. Um, I'm not saying singing those is wrong. It's just how you sing them and how often um, and how whether we are in danger sometimes of, of using that to just bypass the mind and get to the emotions. And I think we need to be careful to hold both together in what we do. I'm sort of talking around your, the question you asked. Um, in relation to demon possession, it's an area that, that I feel I know, I know very little about. Um, I'm not sure that the Bible t- gives us tremendous... It doesn't give us a tremendous detail about how the devil works. Um, I have seen one or two people... Uh, in, in the past who I've wondered about being actually possessed. One, um, and, and it's how you use the words again that I think is important. Um, the, the biblical world, I think, is, is one in, in the New Testament, is one of demonized, which can mean all sorts of things. It can mean an outside effect of the devil, or it can mean an inner possession. Um, I, I would always, when, when I'm talking with people who have problems and struggles, would always ask them about any influence of the occult in their lives, um, would want them to renounce any contacts with that, to pray through it with someone, um, and uh, um, occasionally um, one would meet people who, you would, who I do believe need exorcism. So I'm not denying that that is a reality. I think that we very often... It's, it's easy, though, as I said earlier on, to explain everything by a spirit of this, that, or the other. And everything becomes the devil's work. So Lewis said we, we, we either make too much of the devil or we make too little. Uh, and it's hard to find that, that balance between the two. Yes. between it seems all right to to say it's epileptic 
But then I'll ask, listen, you say my cousin who is epileptic has got an evil spirit in them. Mm. And I find that really quite hard to, to cope with in the classroom situation. Yeah. Whether to say, well, it's all right, you know what I mean? <coughs> I just wonder if you can help at all with that. I mean, it might be just a difficulty mm. that I have to try and handle. But I do find it very difficult. And, and I do get pressed quite hard on that about how I think all I, all I can say really is I think that when one hears accounts of people who have been possessed, who have been um, thrown around as it were, physically by the evil spirit um, and would therefore have what looks like a fit um, but not all fits necessarily are caused by evil spirits. There are other reasons. We know well the organic reasons, most of them anyway, for epileptic fits. And you can do something about it with drugs, uh, with, with medical treatment. And you can cure people or certainly help them a lot. So I think it, you, one could say that if, if it says this is an, an evil spirit that is doing it in the scriptures, I would certainly trust the scriptures on that. Uh, and say yes, this is. I wouldn't explain it away. The account of the evil spirit as saying this is epilepsy, which is what some people would do. They would say, well, that was just the language that they used at that time, and that was their understanding of illness and so on. Now we know better. But I certainly, w I wouldn't say that. <laughs>